Psalm 110. In the the Psalter, in the, the book of Psalms, in the original Hebrew, when you look at how the verses are broken out, you will see that the, the inscriptions to the Psalms are actually listed as part of the first verse. Uh, you will find on some Psalms, you know, for the director of music or to the tune of the lilies or something like that. In this particular Psalm, you will find that the inscription is, and it's very simple, a Psalm of David. And the most uh, natural way to understand those words is that David was the human author of this psalm. He wrote it. Now, modern scholarship isn't quite so convinced. I have a, a study Bible here. It's actually made by Zondervan's. It's called the New King James Version Cultural Background Study Bible. Generally, I tend to like it. But here is what modern, supposedly conservative scholarship does with the inscription. I'll read it for you. This psalm is a prophetic oracle concerning the the king that was probably delivered in the Jerusalem temple. The opening introduction is similar to what is found in Assyrian royal prophecy, that was likely delivered in temple worship at the king's enthronement. The word of Ishtar of Arabella to Earl Haddon, for instance. Thus, in the context of the psalm, the speaker is not the king, e.g. David, but the prophet delivering a message to the king. In Israel, prophetic oracles spoken on the coronation day provided important divine support for the king's authority. Several themes are parallel between Psalm 110 and the Assyrian enthronement prophecy. One, legitimization of kingship. Two, promised destruction of enemies. And three, presence of loyal supporters. And four, priesthood of the king. So this is supposedly a conservative study Bible, and what they have just said is the inscription isn't true. David didn't write the psalm. It's maybe written about David, but not likely, because you had to have the temple standing for this. Uh, This is a psalm that a a prophet has uh, prophesied over a newborn or a a coronated king. How does that stand up if you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. If you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, you believe that God has breathed out the Word, and uh, it's it's literally the truth in all ways that truth is defined. Uh, this, This scholarly approach to our psalm, what happens to it if we go elsewhere in Scripture? For instance, if we were to go to the book of Matthew, chapter 22, and starting at verse 41, we would read this. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David, in the Spirit 
call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. So it's supposedly a conservative study Bible, but there's a passage of the Gospel of Matthew, which is relatively well-known, and in that passage, we see Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and Jesus our Lord says, David, by the Spirit, wrote this psalm. Who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe the the well-educated and erudite scholars, or are we going to believe the second person of the Godhead who wrote the book? I think the answer should be obvious. This is written by David. It is not about him. It is from him. And David is the speaker. But that does bring up the question that our Lord raises. David writes in our psalm, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David is talking to the Lord, to to God the Father, and he says, God the Father said to my Lord above me, sit at my right hand, God the Father's hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So between the king and God the Father, there is someone else. Who would that someone else be? B. Well, we are talking about King David, and King David has received a promise, a promise that has uh, covenantally been expanded even during his lifetime. David was promised, if your sons walk before me in righteousness they will never lack a man to sit upon the throne of Israel. Now that promise was conditional. It was, if your sons are faithful and obedient, your throne will be maintained through the ages. But as you know, David's sons are anything but faithful. You have a reign of men who are uh, traitors to God, and ultimately the throne of David will come to an end for a good uh, several centuries. But the promise was expanded to David in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 7 through 10. There we read this. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me... It was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed such blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest." 
and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. That's not conditional. God has expanded the promise. He has now said, your line will at some point continue forever. There will be a king over the people of God who will last forever. Now this obviously isn't Solomon himself because Solomon dies. And if you study the life of Solomon, uh, he goes through a period of apostasy. He's not a holy man for, for quite a lot of his reign. But nevertheless, God has promised David, he has expanded the promise covenantally, he has said there will come one who will rule the kingdom of God forever from your line. And then further in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah is told, from the line of David shall come the branch, my righteousness, shall come the one whose going forth has been forever, shall come a divine king who shall rule forever on the throne. Now, David knows all of this. He is king of Israel, but he is not given his kingship to serve himself. Among men, why do you think politicians of every stripe become politicians? They will tell you it is because they want to serve their fellow man. Men have a fallen nature. We are sinful beings. And people who desire to rule those are the last people you want to rule, because if they desire it, it means they're not the people who should have it. But in God's kingdom, the king of Israel, which is an office of the visible church, the king of Israel is put there not to serve himself, but he knows he serves the purposes of God, and the major purposes of God have to do with this one that David has been promised. This one that Moses was promised. When he stood up and told the people, uh, there will come a prophet like me from among your brethren. Him you shall hear. The one who is promised to come as an eternal priest in the book of Zechariah. There is a promise from God that there is a coming anointed one who happens to be a king in this case, and that is all my purposes. That is what I am doing on earth. If you go to verse 2 of our psalm, uh, we have the psalmist lay out what God is doing on earth in a, a very uh, pithy little statement. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's verse 1, actually. The Father is working on the world... He is establishing this promised one. He says to the promised one, now you sit at my right hand, through history, we're going to work a work where all of your enemies ultimately become your footstool. You will have conquered them. You will rule creation. You will be the king of all things. This is what I'm doing. I am establishing you. And David turns to the promised one in verse 2. 
And he says, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This is what God is doing. The Father cares about the promised one. He is acting for the promised one. And let's break that down. The Lord is going to do something. Specifically, he is going to send the rod of this chosen one out from Jerusalem, out from Zion, and as this takes place, he's going to rule in the midst of his enemies. So there's going to be an expansion of his rule going out into the world, growing bigger, growing more expansive, but on every border there is still going to be people who hate the kingdom and hate the king, But the kingdom is going to expand out anyway. He is going to rule in the midst of his enemies. There will be people who curse him, swear by his name, belittle him, mock him, and yet his rule will ever and ever expand out into the world because God the Father is making that happen. This is the Christ. When Jesus asked the Pharisees, whose son is the Christ? And they answer, he's the son of David. And then Jesus quotes this psalm and says, okay, now how can he be David's son if he's his Lord? It's clear that Jesus and the Pharisees agree this is the Christ. That's not in debate. So... 2,000 years ago, those who read this psalm said, this is the Christ. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus the Christ said, this is the Christ. And so any sort of uh, attack that this is not the Christ doesn't match what the Bible has said to God's people for all these 1,000 years. This is the Christ. This is the promised one. His rule is going to expand out into the world It's going to go out in circles. It's going to go out in every greater waves. I wonder how the New Testament uses that imagery. If we turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1, the Lord Christ has risen from the dead, and he's spending 40 days with his apostles preparing them for the coming mission. And in chapter 1, beginning at verse 4, we read this. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put under his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, so that's expanding out of Jerusalem, and to the ends of the earth, which is expanding out of Judea and Samaria. So the Lord tells the apostles, you've got a mission, 
you are going to witness for me. You're going to speak of my gospel. And it's going to start in Jerusalem, which our psalm calls Zion, the holy mountain where Jerusalem is established. And then it's going to go out in ever wider circles. You're going to go out to Judea and Samaria, which are right beside Jerusalem. And then it's even going to expand to all the world eventually. The gospel of Christ is going to be heard in the world. It's going to break in, and it's going to expand out circle by circle by circle. Christ is going to rule in the midst of his enemies, and he is going to expand his kingdom bit by bit by the power of God working through the apostles and the witness. Christ is going to spread to the entire world. And one of those apostles, when he was writing concerning what our life in the world would be like, in chapter 6 of Ephesians, we read this, specifically Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10 and going to 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand." You will rule in the midst of your enemies, it's warfare language. You will be conquering, it's warfare language. The apostle takes up the language and says, now, make sure you understand what God is saying. Uh, It's not a physical warfare. Your enemy is the spiritual powers. The world is filled with dark spiritual powers, and they are going to... Uh, They're going to get in your way. They're they're going to try to hurt you. They're going to try to hurt the kingdom. We're going to be at war. But take up the whole armor of God and fight them. The armor of God will allow you to overcome them. You will overcome the rulers of wickedness in the darkness. They're going to be all around you. But take up the full armor of God and Christ's kingdom will continue to expand. That's what Psalm 110 is talking about here. God is going to bless Christ, and the kingdom is going to expand. The powers of darkness don't want that to happen. And so if you see God's kingdom frustrated, if you see attacks upon the church of God and they're successful, don't be surprised, because Christ has enemies. He rules in their midst. But Christ is more powerful than those enemies, his His influence is ever-expanding because God the Father wills it to be, and no one is going to keep that from happening. We are at war, a spiritual war, but a very real war, and Christ rules in the midst of his enemies. The fact that we will participate in this war takes uh, center stage in verse 3. In verse 3, the psalmist says, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. 
That's fairly poetic, but it's fairly clear. When the kingdom of Christ breaks into the world, you will have your volunteers willingly serving you. They will follow you. You are the king, and they will follow you in your conquest. Um, unlike human kings who have to use coercion to make men do what they want, uh, your followers will willingly give themselves to you, and they will be youthful. They will be like the, the, the new dawn. They will be like the dew on the grass. They will, will serve you in youth. This may be a reference to literal youth. When Christ is coming into Jerusalem, you have the children singing his praises, blessing him as the Christ, and the religious leaders tell Jesus, shut those kids up. They're, they're obviously childlike, and they're, they're making a disruption, and they're praising your name, and it's, it's, it's causing difficulty, and it's unseemly. And Jesus does not say, you know, children need to be not unseemly. He says, if they stop, the rocks will cry out what the kids are doing is right. Children glorify God. God calls forth from our children his praise and his glory. We are given our children to disciple them. I have been amazed at how early children can be given faith by God. Uh, and it's real faith. It's, it's real obedience. And so we may be talking about actual youth, but it's more likely talking about his followers will have a youthful spirit. And I have known some of these youths who were in their 80s and very, very impressive. He is talking about people who are like the youth, they are strong, they are vigorous, and they are that way because they are idealistic and joyful. By the time men become adults, if they don't know Christ, they are most likely totally devoid of their idealism. They are cynical people. They have learned that there is no Santa Claus, there is no free meal, and no one is looking out for anybody but themselves. They do not have an idealism. They have a hard, jaded self-centeredness. But in Jesus Christ, you learn there is someone who loves you unconditionally. God the Father showers his love upon you when you are unworthy. God the Father gives you the Christ and bathes you in his blood saves you by faith alone and not by your works. There is goodness, there is mercy, there is kindness. You won't find it among men, but you will find it in Christ's kingdom. And I have known saints of God whose idealism and joy will make children blush because we know the king who is conquering and he is loving, and he is kind, and he is good. He is the entirety of the grace of God wrapped up into a king. And we want to follow him. We want to serve him. We want to be involved in this war with the world because our idealism and our happiness is in him. This is the kind of person who will follow him in warfare. This is the kind of person who will fulfill the Great Commission. The Great Commission was given by Christ to his church, 
not just the apostles, but to his church, right before he reascended into heaven. And there he says this, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." That passage is not only to the ministry of the church. It is not only to the apostles. It can't be because Christ told the apostles, you go teach them to do everything I taught you to do, which would include this which I am now teaching you to do, which means every Christian is to be invested in the Great Commission, the sharing of the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ all over the world. Who will take that up? Who will be willing to talk to jaded and hostile men about a gracious God? Who will be willing to joyfully proclaim the goodness of Christ in an evil world? Who will have the kind of backbone? Who will have the kind of fortitude to be witnesses to the Christ in this dark world? It will be the youthful, joyful, spirit-filled, bubbly, idealistic sons of the kingdom who have experienced the king's love and the darkness cannot put it out. That is who will be able to do this. And this is what this is talking about. When we talk about spiritual warfare, we are primarily talking about the advance of the kingdom of God as the gospel is preached and men are converted. It's more than that, but that's what it primarily is. If you want to see ever-widening circles of light circle the world, if you want to see darkness retreat and light break forth, bear the gospel, because that's what it does. Every Christian is called to be involved in this warfare, to follow the king as the circles expand. But we are the, the, the dew of the dawn. We are the finest of his children. We are filled with enthusiasm for him. We worship him. We love him. It is no burden for that kind of people. Occasionally, especially in we reform circles, we talk about people having a cage stage in theology. And it's so cliche that probably all of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Someone discovers that God saves men totally by grace and not by their works. The light bulb comes on over their head and suddenly they're filled with passion to share this. And you can't shut them up and they're telling it to everybody and they're making social problems because... Uh, They're just so wanting to share this. It's called a cage stage because people want to lock them in a cage. We want to lock them in a cage. But what is the children who are the dew of dawn going to be like? What do children do? Uh, You have children, and I've watched what they do. They babble and they don't shut up. They come and they talk to you and they are excited about what they're excited about and they will talk and they will talk and they will talk. Why do we want to lock these people in cages? 
we may want to um, discipline them a bit. We may want to help them be a little bit more effective, but lock them in a cage? That's very much like the Pharisees saying, tell these children to be quiet. And you can hear God saying, the rocks will cry out. Amazingly concerning this king, in verse 4, we find out that this king is also a priest. King is an anointed office. Priest is an anointed office. But all the way through Scripture, God has absolutely refused to let one man have both offices. If you don't believe me, ask Uzziah, who was in fact a good king, but decided to intrude into the priesthood, and God gave him leprosy. Ask Saul, who because he intruded into the priesthood, was rejected as king, and his reign came to an end. Up till now, God has kept priest and king totally separate, um, but God here now says there will be a special one. He will not only be the king, he will not only subdue his people, protect his people, and, and lead his people in war and be their judge, but he will also be the one who will make atonement for them. A priest stands between you and God, and he takes offerings before God for your sin. Well, this one that was promised to David, he's not just the king. He is also the great priest that is promised. He will atone for us. Do you believe that the rulers of men care for their subjects to the point that they are willing to shed their blood for them? There may have been one or two who rose to that occasion, but generally the rulers of men are very content to lead from behind the lines. They are willing to fight to the last drop of your blood to see that their interests are carried out. But this king is going to be a priest, and he is going to intercede between you and God. He is going to take an offering of blood before God. It's his own blood. If you go to the book of Hebrews, you've got three chapters that talk about this psalm. Uh, this priest is going to offer his own blood for you. He is going to make you right before God by his own sacrifice. And this is your king. The kings of the earth lord it over men, and the great men of the earth expect to be held in high esteem. But this, the greatest king of all, loves you enough to be your priest and offer his own blood. And this is covenantal. The God who is expanding this Messiah's kingdom is also the God of which we read, He has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Positioning is interesting in this psalm. In verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So you have God the Father saying to God the Son, saying to Christ, now sit here at my right hand, which is a very honored position. You put your, your favorite person at your right hand. But when you get down to verse 5, we read, 
the Lord is at your right hand. And here, God the Father is at the right hand of God the Son. What do we make of such a shift of position? Well, it seems very obvious. If each of them can sit at each other's right hand, you have absolute equality. Christ is willing to sit at his Father's right hand and give him honor. The Father is willing to sit at Christ's right hand and give him honor. David's son is going to be nothing short of divine. He is going to be God himself in the flesh. He really is going to be David's son. He's a man, but he is also 100% God, and God the Father is willing to sit at his hand and serve him. And what is the Father doing when he sits at that right hand? Well, um, he's conquering the world for Christ, and we had already seen that in the beginning, but as we go to the end of the psalm, it gets much more picturesque, and things move to a conclusion. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. Is that poetic? Not really. We begin in the psalm with the call to war and the advancement of the kingdom, and we have seen the New Testament makes this a spiritual war. It is the evangelism of the world. It is the growth of the church. But what does the Bible say about how history will roll to an end? There are those who will tell you that the scriptures are on the wrong side of history and they will be forgotten. The scriptures will tell you that the scriptures are eternal and the God who in fact spoke them into being will one day bring judgment to the earth and it will not be symbolic, it will not be poetic, it will not be something you can't miss, it will be absolutely happening and God will judge the living and the dead and he will knock down everything man has ever made He will destroy it under his power. He will subjugate the world to Jesus Christ, and it will be the most obvious thing that you have ever seen. God the Father is going to bring history to a close in the absolute rule of Jesus, his Son. That is where history is moving. And just like the Christ was physical and real among us in his first coming, He is going to be physical and real in his second coming. And in his second coming, his father is going to destroy everything that opposes him, and he will rule. And how easy will it be for the father to do that? The last verse of this psalm is very poetic, and its imagery has led to some very um, wild interpretations. And I will grant you that uh, it, it is very poetic, and you can probably do that. But in context, verse 7 reading this, he shall drink of the brook by the wayside, therefore he shall lift up the head. David seems to be picturing the father finishing off this conquest for his son. 
He's conquering all of mankind. He is bringing all of creation into subjection for his son. And he's fighting this war, and he decides, you know, I think I'll have a little drink of water here, and then I'll keep going. In 1 Samuel, when Saul is fighting the Philistines, he demands of his people that nobody eat anything until we've totally won this battle because we want to drive them away. And uh, Saul is condemned for that because mankind is finite. He's not caring for his people. Uh, They're even doing a worse job because he's starving them in the middle of physical activity. But the father takes all of mankind to war, he catches a little sip, and he goes on. It's an image of someone who is not bothered, someone who is not tiring, somebody who is not limited. He can conquer the whole world, and you know, he occasionally takes a drink of water. We are following Christ, and we are living a spiritual war And we talked about that in Bible study this morning, actually. So if you're in Bible study, this is kind of a second part of everything we were talking about. For us, it seems insurmountable. Human hearts cannot be converted by us. We don't have the power to do that. The world is filled with wickedness and darkness, and it is very real. And we are finite, and we don't just catch a drink, by the way, and keep moving. We are made of clay we are weak, we are powerless. But this psalm clearly shows the evangelization and the conquest of of creation is not powered by us. We are brought into it, we serve our king, but the power for what is happening and what is going to come, that power comes from God alone. And it is limitless. God knows no limit. He doesn't need to rest. He doesn't find himself tired out. It's hard for us. It's nothing for him. And it is in his power we trust. Why is history happening? Well, the Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And at the end of the psalm, that's what's happened. History is going to wrap up. And Jesus the Christ will be Lord of all things, all places, and all people. Christ will be all in all.